Elizabeth, for reading that for us. Good morning again, everybody. We are starting a brand new series this morning on the book of Acts. And I think we have a picture. There it is. We're calling it Throwback. That might be a little cheesy, but the idea of Throwback has become kind of popular in our culture. Some of you on social media will do your Throwback Thursday and post some pictures of you from back in the day and just see what the response is like. But this idea of throwing back, of, of looking back to earlier parts of our lives, for thinking back to where we came from. Um, we, we had a friend visit us and, and eat dinner with us just last week and she was saying that she and her friend, she's younger than us, had a 90's party. And I was like, a, a 90's party? It's too early for that. You can't do 90's party. That makes me feel old. So they're, they're throwing back to the 90's now and the, the presence of a banjo on stage this morning was causing me to throw back a little bit. I'm thankful for Darian for playing. But I love the banjo and the reason I love the banjo is because of my grandpa. I grew up listening to him play the banjo. And he's been gone for quite some time now but I have a picture of him that's up in our house on one of our bookshelves and it's, he's like 19 years old. And he's sitting in his brother's car, this old time car, it's like from the 1930's or something, this picture. But it's, really, it's crystal clear and he's sitting there at sepia tone picture and he's just smiling and he looks handsome and young and joyful. And I think back to who he was, his tenderness, his love for us um, as his grandkids. And it helps me remember. It helps me remember where I came from. It helps me remember who I am and what's more important. And that's often what happens when we look back at old pictures. We remember more of who we are. We want to stay true to our roots. The book of Acts is a unique book in all of the Bible. It's the one resource that's given to us as the church for all time. It's the one resource we have that tells us the story of the early churches, the very first churches that began and the followers of Jesus who made up those churches. In your bulletin, there's a quote that I want to read. It's a longer quote, so you might want to follow along in the very first page there. Scholar Michael Green, he wrote a book on, on the book of Acts called 30 Years That Changed the World, and I love this quote, and I want to read it to you because I think it sets up why we're doing this series so well. He says this, three crucial decades in world history. That is all it took. In the years between 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen, to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than two billion putative adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed of all this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women. What can we learn from these people who turned the world upside down in so short a space of time? I think that's a powerful question. What can we learn from this movement? What can we learn from these churches in the book of Acts? The book of Acts 
the way it tells the story, it can be kind of geographically divided up. You can use the outline of Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 as the outline to understand the whole book. He gathers his disciples, this group, probably of about 70 people, and he says to them, Now, I'm leaving. This is my paraphrase. But he says, But you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city they were in, in Judea, the region around Jerusalem, to Samaria, the neighboring region to Judea, and then, he says, to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts, the way that Luke, the author, tells the story, is to take us through the way that the gospel moved into each of those regions. The first 11 chapters deal with the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but the second part of the book of Acts, where we are beginning today, starts to tell us the story of how did it go from a regional movement to a worldwide movement that ended up in the very heart of the empire at the time, the city of Rome. And so this was a turning point. What we just read, and just heard read by Elizabeth this morning was a turning point of the movement of the followers of Jesus being just a regional movement to a worldwide movement. And it all started in the church at Antioch. So in the church at Antioch, we get a picture God has given us a picture of what it looks like, what it means for the church to be ascending church. And if you have your outline, we're going to be also putting each point up here uh, behind me. But if you have your outline and you want to follow along, we're going to be looking at how the church at Antioch, Acts 11 and chapter 13, give us at least three marks of what it means to be ascending church. Ascending church sees itself as sent versus settled as generous versus hoarding, thirdly, as public versus a private church. And we'll close then by looking at the motivation behind being ascending church. So first, let's look at point one. The first mark of ascending church is that ascending church is made up of people who see themselves as sent versus being settled. First, before I explain that in more detail, it's important for us to get a picture of the city of Antioch and to get some background there for us. So let's paint a picture of that city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Behind Rome and Alexandria, there was Antioch. With a population of anywhere from 300,000 to 500,000 people. That's a big city, especially for that time. Just for reference, that's about the same or more people than live in Fullerton, Orange, and Tustin put together. So a very populated, dense area for the ancient world. It was an innovative city. It was a cosmopolitan city made up from people from all over the world. There are people there from India, the records tell us, and from China. This was a multicultural, cosmopolitan city. And it earned the nickname Antioch the Beautiful for its architecture for its trees and for its fountains. So it was a beautiful place. It was a diverse place. And it was this densely populated place. So, maybe not that unlike the place where we find ourselves today in Southern California and Orange County. So how did a church begin? How did this church begin in a city like Antioch? If you look again at the passage in verses 19 and 20, What we see is that Luke is picking up the storyline that he left off in chapter 8. In chapter 8, we're back in Jerusalem. On one day, a church leader named Stephen was 
sharing about the message of Jesus, he was tried by the Jewish religious leaders and he was killed. And on that day, it says, a great persecution arose against the followers of Jesus and it scattered them out of their homes, out of their city in Jerusalem. And so in A chapter 1, it tells us they went to Judea, they got scattered out to Samaria, and it says in verse 4 of chapter 8, those who, went, who were scattered out, they went preaching the word. And now back here in our passage in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, we learn that they were scattered even farther. So Luke is picking up the storyline. He says they were scattered as far as Antioch. And some, it says, were speaking only to their fellow Jews, those whom they, were, they felt comfortable with. But it says here in Acts 11.20, that some who on coming to Antioch, in this big diverse city, began speaking to Hellenists. In other words, non-Jewish people. They started for the first time to explain who they were, this message of Jesus, why they follow Him to people outside of their Jewish community. And so, what do we see here? We see here that this church began the church at Antioch that became this major sending movement for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, it began when ordinary Christians who were scattered were talking naturally to the people around them about what they believed and why they believed it. The people who began this new movement saw themselves as being sent to Antioch. The word sent or sending, really are the key words that describe this church at Antioch. If you look at chapter 11, and again in um, chapter 13, it says that first, Barnabas was sent by Jerusalem to Antioch to help them out. Later it says that relief in verse 29 and 30 of chapter 11 was sent back to the church in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13 it says that Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch to a new missionary journey. But the first sending that happened in this picture of the church at Antioch was actually in this scattering. Before Antioch became a sending church, they first had to see themselves as sent to where they already were. It wasn't an accident, it wasn't a happenstance that they now lived in Antioch. And their lives were upended. This was a very unexpected thing that happened to them. But they saw it as God doing the sending in their lives. It says the hand of the Lord was with them as they were scattered about and living in this new city. And they saw their lives, even the suffering in their lives, even the things that were unexpected, all as a part of God's mission. There's a narrative that I think is woven into the American dream that we kind of all have grown up with. And one of the great themes of the story of the American dream is that the goal of life is to be settled. And it's something that we, we tell our kids, it's something we talk about when we have a conversation like, so why do I need to get good grades in school? What's the point of school? Have you ever had that conversation with your kids? Or maybe you had that conversation with your parents. And it's like, well, you need to get good grades. You need to be a good citizen. Go to school because you need to go to college. Why do I have to go to college? Well, you need to go to college so you can have a stable job, so you can be secure and comfortable. Well, then what? What do I do after that? Well, then you need to be secure and settled and comfortable so you can retire. Then you can be settled. And you can be established and comfortable. There's something good 
There's something right about this desire for rest and settledness and comfort. But Acts shows us there's a greater narrative at work in our lives. And it's a narrative of sending. And what it would mean for us is that we don't live in Orange County primarily to be settled in Orange County. To be established, to be secure, and to be comfortable. But we have been sent by God to Orange County as a part of His mission. And just like in Acts 11, this can help bring a new perspective. This can bring a new purpose to our lives, especially in including the challenges in our lives. To illustrate, I'll just share a quick story from my own life. Summer of 1997 was the best summer of my life. I was in Virginia Beach, and I was living in a motel and working full-time at Dairy Queen. And you might say, I need a little more information. <laughs> Tell me more about that. That's also the summer where I met Amelia. And you can tell why she fell for me. I was living in a motel, working at Dairy Queen. I mean, what's there not to love about that? There's a great future there. It was the world's largest walk-up Dairy Queen, by the way. So it had something going for it. Well, I didn't go to Virginia Beach for the purpose of living in a motel and working at a Dairy Queen full-time. It was a part of a mission that I was sent on. I was involved in a campus ministry, campus crusade, and we went to Virginia Beach to be trained to understand our faith more deeply and to be able to learn how to communicate that to people in our everyday lives. So, living in a motel and working at Dairy Queen was fun. But if I had somehow signed up for an internship while I was in college to go work at Dairy Queen full-time and just live in the Cherry Motel it would not have been the best summer of my life. But everything about that summer was transformed because I was there for a greater purpose. There was a greater narrative at work in my life. The point is that the scattering that happens in our lives, the hard things, the setbacks when life goes to plan B, are seen in a whole different light when we see ourselves as being sent and not as being settled. These ordinary Christians who ended up somehow unexpectedly in Antioch were a part of the launching pad that took the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so for most people, the call to see ourselves as sent, to be a part of this movement of God as sending church, doesn't mean that we'll be sent out from where we are, although some people that might be true. But for the majority of us, it means reframing how we see ourselves now, that we are sent by God, purposefully, in His plan, to be where He has us. One of the distinctions between seeing ourselves as sent versus seeing ourselves as a settled people is that settled people tend to stay around people who are like themselves, tend to resist change and resist diversity. The church at Antioch, seeing themselves as sent to the city, saw themselves as sent to the whole city, not to just people who were like them. Archaeological evidence in the city of Antioch shows us that there were actually different quarters within the city. They were walled-off quarters where different people of different ethnic backgrounds lived, separated from each other. They had a Greek quarter, they had a Syrian quarter, a Jewish, an African, and a Latin quarter. Now look again at Acts 13, at the very beginning there. Luke is, an, is intentionally describing this diverse leadership team that was at Antioch. 
to show us how it reflected the diversity of the city in Antioch. Barnabas, it says, was from Cyprus. Simeon was called Niger. It's the word for black. He was a black African. Lucius of Cyrene, who was from North Africa. Menaean, who was a friend of Herod, was a Palestinian Jew. And Saul, or Paul, who was a native of Asia Minor in Tarsus. Luke is telling us that in the church, these walls that separated those of different backgrounds came down. These human barriers and divisions were eliminated. Author Bruce Milne, he says it like this, he says, The gospel effectively destroyed the interior walls of Antioch to enable people from every sector to come together to hear the gospel and become followers of Jesus. And so at Antioch you had the first multicultural church. And Luke is being very specific. He doesn't tell us the ethnic background of everybody that he mentions in the book of Acts, but here he's intentionally slowing down to say, look at this. Look at what was created. Look what the gospel created in the city of Antioch. One of the things that we've noticed, our family has noticed, moving back here to Orange County, is Orange County is an incredibly diverse place. People from all over the world make their home here. People from all kinds of backgrounds live in Orange County. And that's one of the things that makes it beautiful. We don't have walls up in Orange County in different quarters separating us. But there still does exist. Maybe invisible walls that divide us. And one of the things that we love about Trinity, about this church, is that the diversity that's here. That God has put together in His own plan and purpose a church that reflects the diversity of the county. And that's exciting. Because that is just being the church and learning how to work and know and love each other side by side is a part of how we witness to the reconciling power of the gospel. One of the main reasons the people in Antioch, the surrounding community, started calling these people Christians is because they had no other category to describe them. These weren't Jewish people, these weren't African people, these weren't Hellenists and Greek people. Who are these people? They came up with another term, Christian. They were not ethnically defined anymore, but defined by Christ. There's a quote for you in the beginning of your worship folder from Bruce Milne. And he says says it very strongly, but I think he's reflecting what Acts is telling us here. He says, Is it too much to claim that we truly justify our right to the name Christian only when we practice the diversity in unity under Christ? A sent church sees themselves as sent to all the people whom God has placed them around. All the people God has put in our path. So that's point one. Point two, ascending church, the second mark of ascending church, is that ascending church is a generous church, not a hoarding church. You may have seen or heard of the reality show called Hoarders. And I I have not seen it, but I had to just part of my research this week, look up some of what happens in that show. People are hoard cats and all kinds of horribly disgusting things that I don't even want to mention right now. And a lot of these situations, I understand, reading up on it, can be life-threatening, very dangerous, very unsanitary. And so it's a big issue, and so they're trying to help them with this. So this week, as I was looking into this idea of hoarding, I came across a crazy story that I'd never heard before from back in the day in New York City. Story of the Collier Brothers. Has anybody heard of the Collier Brothers? 
Homer and Langley. Two brothers who lived in New York City in the early 1900s, they were known for being reclusive hoarders. And they had a, a, a time in their life where they were actually normal people. They both went to Columbia. One was a lawyer, one was a piano salesman. But over time, their area they lived in on Fifth Avenue became very diverse, and it was the Great Depression era, and they became very fearful and scared. So they started to hoard things, and people started to notice it, and they were like, what's going on with the Collier brothers? And they started to gather outside of their apartment, and that made them even more fearful and more hoarding, and so they kept going into more of a reclusive state. Interestingly enough, they both taught Sunday school at a church called Trinity Church. Just a crazy coincidence. Well, at one point, the police got an anonymous call from somebody who said, something's happened over with the Collier brothers. I think, I think they're dead because I'm smelling something. It's nasty. So they came and they went to investigate. They could barely get into their house. They finally found, after five hours of digging, Homer, and they had no idea where Langley was. So they, they wondered, did Langley kill Homer? What's happening here? They started searching all over the city. They returned back to their home. And it was so crazy. They had all these booby traps set up, so much stuff that they actually, after three more weeks, they found Langley in a two-foot-wide tunnel where he had been caught by one of his own booby traps and crushed by his junk. At the end of the day, when they removed everything from this apartment, they had 120 tons of stuff and valued at the equivalent of 1.1 million dollars. Why do I tell that story? Very extreme. What's the point? The more we hoard, the more ingrown we become, the more we become unhealthy, the more we become stagnant. Generosity, on the other hand, it turns us outward. It gives us life as we give generously to others. The Antioch Church understood this. The whole passage tells us a story of this contagious culture of generosity. There were a lot of reasons why the church at Antioch could have said, we need more time. We need to become a bigger church. We need to stabilize before we're generous and we start sending people out and things out to others. We're just one year old. We're the first multicultural church ever. We need to focus inward. We need to figure out what's going on with us first. But they were generous from the beginning. It started with their leadership. They were generous with their resources and with their people. If you look how Barnabas is described, he's, he's an incredible character in the New Testament. He was sent from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem sent one of their best. They were being very generous. They were going through a tough time themselves. They had just been scattered all over the place, the church of Jerusalem. But they said, we're going to give you one of our best. He was actually one of their biggest givers, too. He had gave and donated the, pro the proceeds from selling his home and gave that to the church. They sent him to Antioch. Notice how he's described in verse 22. He didn't come suspicious or skeptical, like, what's going on here, guys? I'm the investigative police from Jerusalem. Instead, he came with a generous and gracious and spirit and attitude. He said he was glad, he rejoiced at the grace that he saw happening in Antioch. And what was the next thing that he did? He spent time with them, he encouraged them, and then he said, I need help. And so he sent for the Apostle Paul, Saul which is a big deal. One scholar says about this, he sent for Paul, whom he knew was more talented and educated than he was, and he risked his place of prominence and leadership in the church. His heart 
was what was best for the church. Not his own advancement. His whole posture to the church was, I'm here to give, I'm here to bless, and I'm here to serve you. It's not about me. And we see the impact that it had on the church. Verses 27 through 30 say that they learned that there was an, an impending famine coming to the church in Jerusalem. And they immediately gathered together and said, we need to give, we need to help. It says they determined to send help. Ascending church is generous with their resources to meet needs. The word determined there is significant. It means to set off a boundary, to predetermine, to make an intentional decision. And it says that everyone participated in this according to their ability. This wasn't something that was forced. This wasn't something where Barnabas said, everybody, Jerusalem's in trouble, I come from there, 10%. This was something that came from the heart. It was a church that was generous with their resources. We also see that ascending church is generous to give away its people. In chapter 13, this church sent out their two best leaders. They sent them out to do a new mission and a new journey, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, who is probably the greatest encourager of all time, the kind of person you want in your life, the kind of person you want in your church, who's always being gracious and generous and building you up. Paul, the greatest leader and teacher probably in the entire New Testament. Instead of holding to them, they sent them off to plant and establish new churches. One of the things that can most hinder the mission of the church and that can most hinder the health of a church is the sad reality that churches can lose sight of being sent on mission and start competing with one another and being in conflict with each other. And for those of you who are here and you're still exploring, investigating, and asking questions about Jesus and about the church, this is something that can confuse you about Christianity. And it should. And it should sadden us when these things happen. Because the church is called to be generous, sacrificial, not selfish, and not hoarding. So the church at Antioch confirms what church history has shown us throughout all time. Churches that hoard their resources do become eventually ingrown. But sending churches who give away their resources keep their focus upward on God in dependence and outward with God on mission. Ajith Fernando says, In an age when many churches spend so much time and money and energy on self-preservation and improvement, Acts presents churches that release their most capable people for reaching the lost. So ascending church is generous and not hoarding. Thirdly, ascending church is a church that lives a public and not a private faith. The private faith says, I will keep my religious views and beliefs to myself. Well, the public faith says, my primary identity is a follower of Jesus. And I'm going to bring this identity with me wherever I go. So I will naturally live and speak and act as if Jesus is the Lord of my life in all spheres of my life. In Acts 11.26, we mentioned this earlier, but Luke says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Prior to this, Christians, followers of Jesus, had referred to themselves as disciples, or the followers of the way. And what's interesting is that this wasn't a name they came up with for themselves. They didn't say, now we're in Antioch, let's come up with our marketing strategy and get our branding right. What do we need to be called? 
Christians. This was actually the term that was given to them by their neighbors, their friends, their co-workers. The city of Antioch had to come up with a term for them. And they were simply living out their faith in an organic and natural way, and in a public way. And it was the surrounding community that made the connection that said, this is about this guy, this guy they call the Christ. John Stott, in his commentary, points out that this term in the Greek, Christianoi, is parallel to a couple other terms that were used at the time to describe groups of people. One is Herodonai, or Caesaronai, followers of Herod, or those who were loyal followers of Caesar. The point is that Christianity was a whole new way of life, lived under the reign and the rule of Jesus. There was a new Lord, and His Lordship applied to every aspect of their lives. And so the city was asking, what do we call this group? They're crossing all these ethnic and cultural barriers like nothing we've ever seen. They have a new way of life, a new community, a commitment to a higher allegiance. Not Herod, not Caesar, but to this guy, Jesus. There was no category for them. And what we learn is that the faith that the church at Antioch was living out was obviously distinct and different than anything the culture had seen at this point in time. So it was distinct and different. It was public and it was noticeable. But it was also somewhat intriguing. Now the term Christians, it may have been used in somewhat of a derogatory sense. Like, who are these Christians? They like this guy Jesus. What is that? But they also had people's attention. And they had people's attention directed to the right place on Jesus. Whenever you go to a sporting event, you know, most people in the sporting event, they're, they're there for the home team. They're cheering on the home team. But you always have some visiting fans there as well. Maybe you've been a visiting fan in a home crowd before. And if you've been that person, you've been wondering probably, you know, when I go to this stadium, should I wear my jersey? You know, how much am I going to cheer when my team does something exciting? And certain places you might be a little bit more reluctant to show your true colors. Like if you're a Giants fan going to Dodger Stadium, you might think twice about that because that can probably get you in trouble. But when you're there when you, and you're observing the crowd, there tends to be two types of visiting fans. One is the, the people who just assimilate and hide. They don't want to deal with any flack from the home crowd. So this, I'm just going to leave my jersey at home. Then you have the other type of fan who's trying their hardest to be obnoxious and yell as loud as they can whenever their team does anything. Some of you might be that guy or that girl, but we won't, we won't know unless we actually see that. But the best visiting fans are people who, they just can be themselves. They can wear their team's colors, their jersey, cheer a little bit, not go out of their way to go crazy and obnoxious. You don't have to hide your allegiances. You can just go and be yourself. Christians tend towards one of those two reactions when it comes to public faith. Often we think when we're out living our lives in the public sphere that we just need to hide. Just kind of want to assimilate. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be too flashy. We just want to blend in. Or Sometimes Christians can be very loud and offensive. But there is a third option, 
And I think Antioch was taking this option. They were following Jesus, and they were being themselves wherever God put them, and whatever, with whomever God put in their path. You know, the flow of thought here from 25 to verse 26 says they were called Christians. And then it tells us in verse 26 that the reason they gained this public identity was as a result of a year of Paul and Barnabas spending time with them, meeting with them, and teaching them. And we see a principle at work there. In order to have a public faith, and not a private or a hidden faith, we need to see that indispensable connection between training and sending, between maturity and mission. Those things are not opposites. We don't choose from those two things, but they go together. We see that Paul and Barnabas spent a whole year spending time with the church so that they might ground themselves more in their identity as Christians. What does it mean to follow Jesus in all of life? It's emphasized there in chapter 11, and then again in 13 we see more and more teachers were raised up. This multicultural teaching leadership team says these were teachers. They valued teaching. They saw their need for teaching to understand what does it look like to live out this public faith. One theologian says, what happened during this year, the year that Paul and Barnabas taught, was that the church in Antioch acquired an understanding of itself and assimilated the gospel in such a way that it became able to share it under new terms, better adapted to the mission that God had entrusted to it. To be a Christian, this theologian was saying, is to understand what does it mean that my identity is in the gospel. Not in my ethnicity, not in my, the place where I live, not in my work, but it is in Christ. So being yourself and living out this identity in all of life is the natural and organic way to have a public faith. And we realize that it's not a choice we have to make between deep spiritual formation and mission. It's a both and. So Antioch had this legacy of being a sending church. If you look at church history, later on you see that actually Peter spent some time here. Leaders of the early church like Ignatius, Theophilus, Lucian, Theodore, Chrysostom, all were either born or trained in this church. Why is that? Why did they have such a legacy that lasted for hundreds of years of teaching and training and sending? Maybe because it was because that they never lost sight of being a sending church. So, those are the three marks of a sending church. To close here, I want to look at the motivation of a sending church. Some of us might be drawn to the idea of a sending church to be a part of a great mission that God has called us to, but for others, we might struggle with that a little bit. The idea of proselytizing, the idea of talking with others about what I believe makes us feel uncomfortable. So what is the motivation for doing this? Why do this? There are a lot of wrong motivations, some being guilt, superiority, a sense that we are responsible for other people's destinies or decisions. What Acts shows us is that ascending church is deeply rooted in the proper motivation for being sent. And the only proper motivation for being sent is love. Love for God and love for people. 
And the source of this love for God and love for people is actually not something we have, but something that comes to us from God. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 4, verses 8-10. through 10. Listen for the word sent. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, and not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. While we were running from His love, while we were refusing His love, God pursued us. And not only did He pursue us and come find us, but He pursued us to cover us. This word propitiation means the covering over of God's justice. The covering over of the sentence that we deserved in our, lo- in our running away from the love of God, in our refusal of His love. God turns us back by sending His Son, by taking upon Himself the death that we deserved, the death that we should have died, He took in our place. Today we celebrate communion together. And communion is a picture of God sending love. That God sent His only Son into the world to die so that we might live. That in Jesus and by faith we are cleansed and we are forgiven. That our identity is shaped now as those who are the beloved of God. Those who never have to doubt the unconditional and forgiving and healing love of God in our lives. And to be full of that, to know that is our identity, is the only proper motivation that fills us and sends us out with love for others. So in this meal, Jesus is present. He's present to empower us, to strengthen us, to meet us in our weaknesses, to meet us in the places where we want to hide, to meet us in the places where we want to hoard, to meet us in the places where we want to be settled and not sent. And so, in a few moments, when we share in this meal, and I invite you to come forward, remember that it wasn't that we loved God first, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son that we might live through Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this incredible church, the church at Antioch, and giving us this record of their life together, of their mission together. And I pray that You would meet us right where we're at. Some of us came this morning and we weren't thinking about mission to anybody else. We weren't thinking about being generous because we felt our own brokenness and the weight of the things that we're struggling with ourselves. May this meal, may this day be a day of lifting those burdens. May you refill us with the power and the strength of your love. As we receive your word and as we receive this picture of the gospel, the body of your Son broken, His blood shed for us, so that we might be forgiven, cleansed, 
healed, renewed, and remade, and sent out. Strengthen us and empower us today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And now we're going to respond to the grace of God by giving back to Him through our gifts and our offerings. Just a reminder, if you have a response that you'd like to indicate on the fall kickoff brochure, you can drop that in the offering basket as it goes by. So let's take some time to reflect, to pray, and after, after we collect the offering, I'll come back up and lead us in the celebration of communion.